We live in an age where the ordinary means of grace have fallen out of favor. Uh, Last week, we began a a short um, topical, or I like to call them doctrinal, series on what are often called the ordinary means of grace. And what I mean by that is these are the regular, consistent, ordinary ways in which God um, nourishes and nurtures our faith. So normally, most of you know this, it's my habit to preach um, expository sermons where we walk through a certain book of the Bible, uh, exposing our hearts, exposing our minds to the truths that God would have for us. But for these next couple of weeks, um, up up until Thanksgiving probably, we're going to take a break from our study of the gospel according to John. We're going to look at these ordinary ways in which God feeds us. The ordinary means of grace. We started last week by looking at ways in which God feeds us through His Word, both read publicly and especially preached. And we asked and answered two questions last week. The first was, how are we to attend to God's Word? And the second is, how are we to receive God's Word? So we saw that we are to to attend to God's word with diligence, with preparation, and with prayer, and all with an attitude of of genuine repentance. And we're to receive his word with faith and love, laying it up in our hearts to keep us from sin. And then finally, we're to put what we have heard what we have received from God's word into practice in our lives. We are to be doers of the word and not merely hearers only. But as I said, we live in an age where the ordinary means of grace have fallen out of favor. Preaching is often kept short and light and relevant. Public prayer is generally forgotten in churches except for maybe right before the offering. Certainly not long prayers. The idea of a prayer meeting is long gone from most churches, and any concept of that kind of lengthy pastoral prayer, it's seen as boring and old-fashioned. The ordinances of baptism and communion are often de-emphasized, and sometimes they're even kept hidden. The church where I ministered in Illinois, before we got there... um, They used to have communion on occasional Wednesday nights, even in the gym, actually, not even in the sanctuary or the worship center, so that the seekers in the crowd, those who were in the crowd who were not believers, that they did it that way so they wouldn't be turned off by the strangeness of it all, because it's strange. Well, as a result of that, hardly anybody ever came out which means that very few Christians in that church were obedient to Christ's command to eat the bread and drink the cup and so proclaim his death until he returns. But we believe that these ordinary things, the things that we do regularly, are the main ways in which people grow. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the instruments, the, the tools that God uses to grow us in our faith are His Word, the ordinances, baptism and communion, and prayer. And let me just add right here that it is okay to use the word sacraments. Just like it's okay to use the word sanctuary to refer to this room. We don't believe that the observation of the sacraments save you, but we do believe that they are sacred ordinances of the church, put into place by Jesus himself, established by Christ. So again, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and the instruments, the tools that God uses to grow us in our faith are the word, the sacraments, and prayer. Not church camp, not Christian concerts, not pizza parties, and and hear me very carefully, there is nothing wrong with those things. We may even be spurred on by some of those things, and I would hope that we are. But the ways in which God has historically 
And the ways in which Scripture tells us that we will grow is through the the ordinary means of grace, the ordinary things that we do. So any other program, whether it's a small group Bible study, whether it's Sunday school or a youth ministry or VBS or women's ministry or men's ministries, any of those and all of those should not intrude on or take the place of the ordinary means of grace for the assembled church. Acts chapter 2 is one passage that is often uh, used in in explaining the ordinary means of grace. Um, Upon hearing the gospel, as Peter preaches throughout chapter 2, verse 40, so Acts chapter 2, 40 is sort of a a summary or, or, or his application at the end of his sermon. Peter says this, so Acts 2, 40 says, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The application of his sermon of preaching the gospel is save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so after he preached, verse 41 says this, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So those who received his word, that is the, the preaching of the word of God, Peter's sermon, preaching of God's word, those who received his word, they were baptized, and then 3,000 souls were added to the local visible church in Jerusalem. There's a clear kind of order of progression here. First, they received the word of Christ as preached through Peter. Second, those who received the word were baptized. And then third, those baptized believers joined together in that local church there in Jerusalem. And then the next verse, Acts 2.42, goes on to tell us what those church members did when they gathered together as an assembly, as a church. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. This is what they did regularly. This is what they did habitually. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Um, Just as an aside, uh, we can see beginning to develop a a pattern here. I'm just going to say it. We can see a pattern here for a weekly. They did these things weekly. They did these things, even even the fellowship, regularly, weekly, on the Lord's day. They devoted themselves even to the breaking of bread. Um, hold that into the back of your minds there. Uh, regularly, really regularly participating in communion. With a Greek word that's translated here in Acts 2.42, as devoted themselves. That word means that these, these early Christians were, this is the definition, they were strong and steadfast in giving constant attention. They gave themselves to certain primary disciplines together in that local church, and, and we could call these the ordinary means of grace. They were strong and steadfast in giving this constant attention to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. See, an an ordinary means of grace-based ministry is a ministry that is focused on doing the things of God, doing the things that the Bible teaches are central to the spiritual health and spiritual growth of His people. So a ministry that is focused on the ordinary means of grace is a ministry that's actually radical, but not in the way that people typically think. It's radical in that it is committed to following the biblical mandates for the priorities of the ministry. In other words, we might say that we're a radically ordinary church because we are first and foremost concerned with reflecting Jesus Christ by being obedient to his commands. We are first and foremost concerned with with the phrases biblical fidelity. You know the word fidelity. 
Semper Fi, right? The Marine, always faithful. Semper Fidelis. Because faithfulness is relevant. And in our day, in our age, faithfulness is radical. Isn't it? So as we move on, remember this. Just as we walk through this, just remember this. The gospel is the message, and the local church is the plan. That's the message of the book of Acts. That's the message in the New Testament. The gospel is the message. The good news of Jesus Christ is the message, and the, and the local church is the plan to carry out Jesus' commission. And so it's our responsibility to take these things seriously. God has spoken to us, and so we would do well to listen. God has invited us into his throne room to cry out to him, and so we would do well to pray. God has raised us to walk in a newness of life, and so we would do well to get into the waters of baptism. God has made an atonement for our sins, and so we would do well to remember and to proclaim his death until he comes. So we're going to look mostly this morning at 1 Corinthians 11. I want to read verses 17 through 34. I read that middle section already a couple of times. I want to read this whole thing again. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. Paul is instructing the Corinthian church. He's got several things that he needs to address that they are, frankly, doing wrongly. They're living not much um, unlike the world. And he says this, so 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead and with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, uh, we would not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's just stop and pray right here again. Father, as we have done this, if we have, as we have um, eaten the bread and uh, drunk of the cup, Lord, um, to proclaim the death of Jesus Christ, we ask that you would help us to understand these things. That it would not be merely ritual, that it would not be merely just something that we do because we're a church, but that we might actually believe and understand, that we might be reminded of Jesus' shed blood and broken body. Help us to grow in our faith, Lord, and strengthen us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the question is, is communion or is the Lord's Supper, is it, is it simply a, a, a wonderful symbol of Christianity? Or is there something more? Is it merely a memorial service for someone who has died? Or is there something current for us today? Kevin Van Hooser, who is a um, 
professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School up outside Chicago. He, he says this. I like this definition. He says, the Lord's Supper is a verbal, visual, and visceral summary of the gospel. Verbal, visual, and visceral. In other words, we, we hear it, we see it, we taste it. Flip back a couple of pages there in 1 Corinthians. I want you to look at, before we get to chapter 11, chapter 10, just verses 16 and 17. So 1 Corinthians 10, 16. Again, remember, Paul is correcting a lot of things that the Corinthian church is doing wrong. And, and so there's a tone of correction in his voice here. But he says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Well, these verses right here, they seem to indicate that the Lord's Supper, the the bread and the cup, is more than just a memorial service. Because there's, there's participation on our part. So what does it mean to participate in the body and the blood? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge that when we talk about the body and the blood, we're talking about death, which of course we know. We're talking about Jesus' death. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that he is the propitiation. That means the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation, an atoning sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness Because in his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. So when we we talk about Jesus' death, we're talking about him as a sacrifice for sin. Probably the most explicit passage that explains all of this is Hebrews chapter 10. Leave your finger there in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 and flip over to the book of Hebrews I want to begin in verse 1. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 says this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. So think of the Levitical sacrifices. Every year, going in over and over again. It can never, uh, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any uh, consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, the preacher of Hebrews explains, he says, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a, a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer an offering for sin. Christ is sufficient. That's what that chapter says, those verses 1 through 18 there say. That's what the reformers meant when they, uh, when they said that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's what Paul means in Romans 8, 1 when he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He means that Jesus Christ is sufficient. So what does it mean then to participate in the blood and body of Christ? Well, let's take the body first. So again, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18 says this. So 1 Corinthians 10, 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not uh, those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Participants in the altar. So here, Paul, I know I'm jumping around a little bit, but here Paul is referring back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the altar was a table on which food was sacrificed to God and the priests ate of the offerings. So, for example, I want you to listen to this law about the grain offering. This is from Leviticus chapter 6. Just listen. And this is the law of the grain offering. This is Leviticus 6.14. The sons of Aaron, these are the priests, shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar. And one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oil and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, altar, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And the rest of it Aaron and his sons shall eat. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. In the court of the tent of meeting, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. Uh, I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. Every male among the children of Aaron may eat of it, as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whoever touches them shall be holy. And so the altar... Is a, is a picture, it's a, it's a preview of the Lord's table. And in both cases, the, the benefits of the table belong to the priests. The sons of Aaron were able to eat of the grain offerings. Under the old covenant, under the old law, they participated in those sacrificial offerings. But for us, we, those of here, in here who are Christians, who have trusted in Christ, repentant, converted believers in Jesus Christ, Peter calls us a royal priesthood. And we participate in the, in the grain offering, in the bread, which is his body. The bread that we break, the grain offering that we, that we give today is a participation in the body of Christ. So, so what does that mean? Two things. First, it means that we have participated with Christ in dying to sin. Those of us who are Christians have participated with Christ in dying to sin. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. To participate in the body of Christ means that I have been crucified with him. Paul explains this very clearly in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. He says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Listen very carefully here. As a Christian... If you are a Christian and have trusted in Christ for salvation, the power of sin has been broken because 
Our old sinful self, your old sinful self was put to death with Christ. That means you are no longer a slave to sin because the sacrifice was final because Christ is sufficient. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But to participate in the body of Christ also means that we do this together. That's where the word communion comes from. We do this in communion. It's no, it's no coincidence that the, that the church is often referred to throughout the New Testament as the body of Christ. And one of the most important things that we do in order to care for our bodies is eat. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We, we eat the bread of life. And he gives us life, true life. And we eat it together. And we do this again and again and again as, a, as an Ebenezer, the King James word is. A stone of remembrance as a renewal of the new covenant. We do this over and over and over again as a way of declaring to one another, I'm still a Christian. We are still his people. We still believe. As a way of declaring to each other that our sin has been put to death with Christ on the cross. This is where the concept of a, of a visible and invisible church is kind of helpful. Because not only is communion uh, communing with Christ in his death, it is also communing with his body. It's identifying with the church invisible or universal and also the church visible, those that we can look around on a Sunday and see. It's identifying with that saint's great cloud of witnesses, Hebrews chapter 11. Those that are gathered around the world on the Lord's day. Those that friends that we know and love that don't live right near us. It is communing with them, identifying with them, and it's also identifying with the people that you see when you look around the room. The beginning of that verse there in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 16, he, he begins with, The cup of blessing that we bless... Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? Here again, Paul takes us back to the Levitical law, to the, to the uh, Levites, uh, to point out that the blood of the offerings was sprinkled and collected to show God that life had been taken, that blood had been spilled, that death has occurred, because the wages of sin is death. But 1 John 1, 7 tells us that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Participation in the blood of Christ means that we have been washed clean. That the stain of our sin has been removed. That we have been cleansed from all unrighteousness. And I want to point out here, kind of after the fact, that the word participation... Participation, it's the, the Greek word. I don't give you too many Greek words, but this one is fun to say. It's koinonia. It's the word fellowship. We often translate it fellowship. Participation in the blood and body of Christ is, is a fellowship. It's a communing. We do this together. And so if we have participated in the blood of Christ, it's because his, shed, his blood was shed on account of our sin. If we have fellowship in the blood of Christ, it's because that blood has cleansed us from all sin and iniquity and transgression and unrighteousness. So if we participate in the Lord's Supper as an ordinary means of grace, it's a regular way that we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we, and we hear it when we read the word. We hear it when we read these verses in 1 Corinthians or sometimes in John or Matthew, or Mark, or Luke. When we hear these words, we see it in the elements. When you see the bread, it is to remind you of the body of Christ broken for you. When you see the cup, it is to remind you of the blood of Christ cleansing you from all unrighteousness. 
And when you taste it together, all of us, all at once, it's identifying with his church and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ until he comes. And so yes, the Lord's Supper is an an ordinary means of grace. And it is is more than just a, a wonderful symbol. It's a remembrance of what God has done in the past. It's a connection to what he is doing in the present. And it's actually an anticipation of what he will do in the future. So I want to look at those three concepts, the past, present, and future. So now in 1 Corinthians 11, finally, past, present, and future, there are three key words in this passage that we need to notice as we dwell on what God has done in the past, what he's doing in our present, and what he will do in the future. And the first key word there from 1 Corinthians 11 is the word remembrance. Remembrance. Look at verse 23, 23 to 25. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus Jesus wants us to remember his death. Why? Why does he want us to remember his death? Because the entire Christian life depends on it. The entire Christian life depends on it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He wants us to remember his death because our entire life depends on it. So Jesus wants us to remember two things here. First, he wants us to remember that he died. He wants us to remember that he died. At the end of this letter, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. We, We need to understand this. We need to understand this because progressive theology or liberal theology steers us in the direction that if we follow the life and teachings of Jesus, we will be saved. If we just simply follow the life and teachings of Jesus and try to be a good person and try to be like him, then we will be saved. But Jesus' life, hear me very carefully here, Jesus' life alone will not save us. His teachings by themselves, and usually what we mean by that is picking and choosing his teachings, they can't save us. Christ's death saves us by becoming our substitute. Now, I want to clarify that because his teachings point to his death, burial, and resurrection. What I mean by that is we usually miss that and we pick out the love your neighbor part. Or those things. But Christ's death saves us by him becoming our substitute. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. Uh, I want you to listen to this. We don't, we don't have time to go into great detail of all of the Old Testament um, offerings or sacrifices, but of the five major offerings in the law, five major, major um, offerings or sacrifices in the law, hear this. He became the burnt offering, bringing atonement for his people. He became the grain offering, proving his submissive obedience to the Father. He became the peace offering, establishing reconciliation between repentant sinners and God himself. He became the sin offering, bringing propitiation, paying the penalty for our sin. He became the guilt offering, providing repentance for us, thereby fully offering us redemption. In the supper, Jesus wants us to remember that he died 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18 says. And then secondly, he also wants us to remember how he died. That is, willingly, of his own accord, humbly, in submission to his Father. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, even death on a cross. And the world will tell you, the world will tell you that humility is foolish. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he wants us to remember that he did this as a sacrifice. He, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, offering himself and purifying us. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, offering himself and purifying Dana, purifying us. So when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we look to the past at what Christ has done to secure our salvation. But we do this, and the second key word here is we do this together. Jump down to verse 33. So 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-three says this. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. When you come together, he actually uses that phrase throughout this passage, I think five or six times. When you come together, when you come together. See, the Lord's Supper is not only about what he has done in the past, it's also about what is happening in the present. I, I want to make that kind of that same aside right here that I made earlier. Five or six times in this passage, Paul uses that phrase, when you come together. And it means every time you assemble. Keep this in the back of your minds as we think through these things and as we grow in our understanding of God and his word. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together, we, we eat together. This is the visible church that Paul is referring to here. He's referring to we, Christians, us, those of us assembled here, repentant believers in this room today. We do this together. Again, back in chapter 10, verse 17, because there is one bread, there are many, uh, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one bread. This is part of what it means to discern the body from verse 29. It is affirmation that we are Christians. We are in Christ. We are his body. And we also are part of his body. And, and I hope that you understand that I'm speaking specifically to Christians here. Paul, Paul is writing to Christians those who have been born again, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation. The Lord's Supper is a, is a physical demonstration of the unity of the church. There was no unity at the church at Corinth. That's what he's correcting. That's what the previous verses are about, verses 17 to 22. They were not united. And so Paul has, he sets out here to correct them. And so when he tells them to eat at home, it, it, that's not just a, a, like a callous statement toward the poor. 
He's already rebuked those who are getting drunk on the communion wine. In fact, they ought to have been meeting one another's needs all along. That's Acts 2, 44 to 47. They met one another's needs. They took care of each other. But the Lord's Supper, what he is saying here, this is a family meal. And the children of the Lord are to love one another and are to care for one another. John tells us in 1 John 2, he says, Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It is, it is impossible, what John is saying, it's impossible for a true believer to grow closer to the Lord while at the same time willfully neglecting to love his brother. It's impossible for us to grow in the Lord while at the same time willfully neglecting to love one another. Now, there's a sub-point underneath all of this, but it is of no less importance. It's another key word, and that word is examine. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is what is known, at least in certain circles, as um, what Paul is doing here is fencing the table, putting a barrier around the table, an appropriate barrier around the table. There are two ways in which he does this. And the first is, he says, examine yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're really saved. He uses the same phrase in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. We could spend a lot of time on this point, and I don't want to today. But let me just give you three questions that will help you to examine yourself. Not, not the people next to you, but to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. The first is, do you, do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? I don't, mean, I don't mean do you like them or do you like some of them. I mean do you, do you love them? Do you love them enough to sacrifice for them? Whatever that looks like, your time, your money. Are you willing to overlook numerous offenses? Are you quick to forgive? Do you practice, second question, do you practice righteousness? Or is sin your regular practice? Are you striving for, toward Christ-likeness? Are, are you quickly repenting of sins when they're pointed out to you? And then the third question to examine yourself is, are you living a godly life? 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 3 says this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now let me, let me say this again. I don't want to add a bunch of law where there isn't law. 1 John 5, 1 to 3, John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Don't leave that last sentence off that. His commandments are not burdensome. So are you living a godly life obeying his commands? I would encourage you to, to study the, le the letter of 1 John. Examine yourself to see if you are truly saved. If not, 2 Corinthians 5.20 says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the, the begging that we do. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. 
And then the second way in which we kind of fence the table or, or really where we need other people to fence the table for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11 says, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. Don't miss that statement. Who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. The message of the gospel is not only a message for the lost to be found, it's also a message for the found to not get lost. It's also a message for the found to not get lost. We don't have... I could preach it. I could preach for a long time. We don't have time to go through all of it today. But this is referring to church discipline. I mentioned this earlier in the service. That's the church really through the elders, prohibiting an unrepentant sinner from participating in the Lord's Supper. Paul says some of you are weak and ill and some have died. We do this both for their own protection and for the protection and purity of the church. For their own protection because they will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord, Paul says here in verse 27. And in verse 29, he, he writes that the, the guilty person would be, would be eating and drinking judgment on himself. I mentioned this in Sunday school. But sometimes, sometimes God disciplines those who have claimed his name literally to the point of sickness or even death. So don't participate in the Lord's Supper. Don't partake of the Lord's Supper if you've not repented of your sin. And that's for your own protection. But it's also for the protection and purity of the church. 1 Corinthians 5.13, he says, Purge the evil person from among you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Christ is concerned for the holiness of his church. If you don't think that purity and holiness is, is an issue in this day of grace... Then go back and reread Leviticus in light of the book of Hebrews, which says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the subtext to this is membership, submitting to one another, submitting to the church. It's just us. I mean, you could look around and see who it is. It's submitting to one another and covenanting together to hold one another accountable to promise to encourage one another and build one another up, to see that the purity of the church's witness is maintained. And I want to acknowledge that membership is scary. Doing these things are scary. Um, I want to point out that if you continue to read throughout 1 Corinthians, you're going to see membership all over chapter 12. The word member is all over there. But membership can be scary. Membership is putting your soul under the care of other human beings who still sin. But it's beautiful because it's living the Christian life knowing that other redeemed sinners are caring for you and also are needing to be cared for by you. It's knowing that your, your leaders, the elders of the church, are living lives worthy of imitating and that they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. God nurtures our faith through these ordinary means of grace by reminding us of his work on the, in the past on the cross. By instructing us to eat together so that we will understand that we are not alone, but we are part of his body. And then finally, and we will finish with this. He nurtures our faith through the ordinary means of grace by setting our eyes on the future. This is that, that final key word I mentioned. Until. Until. Verse 26. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until. The return of Jesus Christ is the blessed hope of the church. Participation in the Lord's Supper, that definition, it is a visceral a visual and communal proclamation of the gospel. It's a declaration of victory. It's a declaration of the coming kingdom. Participation in the Lord's Supper, it keeps us watching and waiting and anticipating Christ's return. 
Matthew chapter 24, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known on what part of the night the the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The ordinary means of grace, the the simple uh, bread and, and sip of juice, it reminds us to remain steadfast, immovable until the day of the Lord when we all get to heaven. And what a, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Michael Horton, who's an author and a seminary professor, he, he says that the Lord's Supper is not a reward for strong Christians. Do you know that? The Lord's Supper is not a reward for strong Christians. It's a means of grace for weak and needy Christians. That's us. All of us. He goes on to say that the supper is a picture of the bloody atoning death of Jesus Christ, which summons sinners to cast themselves freely and fully upon him alone for salvation. It's a means of grace as Christians remember that they bring nothing at all to the table of the Lord except our own hungry souls to be fed by Jesus Christ himself. This is a means of grace because in the Lord's Supper, God abundantly feeds his people as we look by faith directly at Jesus. It's a means of grace as God spiritually nourishes his people through the good news of the gospel, which feeds and strengthens the heart of all believers. The Lord's Supper is not a reward for strong Christians. It's for us, the weak and needy, who need to know Christ. Pray with me. Oh God, our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. We thank you that you feed us. That you feed us eternal life. That you feed us all that we need, the bread of life, Jesus Christ that we may no longer be hungry, that we may no longer thirst, but that we can be satisfied. And so, Lord, as we come to you even today, as we finish up our worship this morning and go about our week, remind us of these things. Remind us that our satisfaction comes only from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I would ask as we finish...